Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Do you miss the days when all the answers to life's big questions could be found in the juicy pages of Dolly Doctor? Sex, friendships, relationships, family, life stuff. Dolly gave us total honesty with zero judgment. We learned that it wasn't weird to masturbate, like a lot, and that periods can sometimes be tricky, unpredictable things. We talked about what to do when we had a crush on someone and how to get over relationship breakups. Having Dolly to turn to made all that teenage angst a bit more bearable. Adulthood was around the corner. We would all get our shit together, move to the city to become big-time businesswomen and sleep with Harrison Ford, like Melanie Griffiths in Working Girl. Was that just me? Life was happening. And then we all grew up and realised that everything is still confusing. Welcome to the Big Sister Hotline. Presented weekly by me, Clementine Ford, this is your place to ask all the questions you still don't know the answers to about sex, friendships, relationships, family and life stuff with the kind of frank advice you could expect to find from the person who loves you most, your big sister. Because life isn't easy. And sometimes we all need a big sister to call on. Hello, dear listeners, guys, gals, and non-binary pals. You're listening to the Big Sister Hotline, a weekly podcast offering frank, funny, and feminist advice on all the things that matter, life, love, and whether or not you should break up with your no-good Nick boyfriend. Spoiler, the answer is always yes. One of the best things about hosting a podcast like this is I get to invite incredible women to join me for an hour each week to discuss all the things I find most galvanizing. And this week, I'm very glad to bring one of my BFFs to the hotline. If you don't know her by now, you should. And if you do know her, you'll know how fucking fantastic she is. She's a staunch Gamilaroi woman who resides on the unceded lands of the Awabakal people, an academic, freelance writer and PhD candidate researching in the field of Indigenous knowledges, sovereign women and formal education systems. In 2019, she delivered a TEDx talk on the power of disruption within Australia called Disruption is Not a Dirty Word. And if that weren't a big enough output, she's also the founder, producer and host of the Black Academia podcast. Amy Tunig, welcome to the Big Sister Hotline. Yama, my dear, thank you for having me on. It's absolutely my pleasure. I'm so glad that you're finally here (laughs) in your dressing gown. I am in my dressing gown because it's that work from home life, yo. (laughs) How how is working from home going for you? Because it's a different answer for everybody. And I, I was reflecting on that for myself this week because in those first few weeks, well, the first week especially, 
um, after we went into lockdown, uh, my anxiety levels were at an all-time high. But I remember looking at you um, on the inter- internet, you know, on Facebook and on Instagram and just being quite amazed and uh, impressed and also feeling incredibly safe underneath your <laughs> like, watchful, um, uh, prepper kind of behaviour. <laughs> I try not to give off too strong a prepper vibe, um, but I do live in a semi-regional area, so I, I have the luxury of, you know, having chickens and um, room for a garden, and uh, I had a lot of anxiety watching. So we, we were watching the COVID stuff unfold kind of before the media were making a big deal of it here because we co-parent internationally, my husband and I. So my amazing stepdaughter lives over in the United States. And so international travel is a really big part of our family life. Um, And being First Nations family, uh, I was very aware that it would probably be particularly unsafe for mob um, even before they confirmed that. So I, we were watching it ahead of time and I was so super anxious. Like I was highly anxious. And I think being able to do things at home was a great way for me to feel like I had a little bit of control over something while we were watching our regular things suddenly stop and grind to a halt. So, you know, my stepdaughter wasn't able to come and spend Easter with us and we had to cancel all of the plans around that and it it just felt really anxiety-inducing and I just deal with anxiety with projecting. So I I bought a larger bird aviary and I went and got baby chickens to add to the chickens that we already have and and started hand rearing baby chicks on top of everything else and looking to, you know, become more sustainable in our own yard. So I planted vegetables that like, I'm, I'm not even going to eat. I just felt like I needed to do something. <laughs> there is something about that, isn't that, isn't there, you know, that, that sense of needing to get control over your environment by mm-hmm. um, not only creating a raft of projects for yourself, but also yeah. um, I was thinking last night about how, uh, no one's making sourdough anymore because the first few weeks, like, get my starter happening. I've got to learn how to make this bread. This bread has defeated me, but I'm going to master the bread. And I was looking at my bag of flour in the corner of the kitchen last night, thinking, oh, I haven't, I haven't tried the sourdough for a while because it does feel like everything has. And this is the trap. This is the trap. And this is what I've learned from you and your um, your posts is that. Because also one of the things that I really love about your uh, following you on Facebook as well is that you're sharing a lot of information that I wouldn't necessarily have come across myself about, you know, tracking tracking the outbreak in other countries and mm-hmm. that, that trap of thinking, well, everything's fine here. You know, we've we've got it under control. But actually, mm-hmm. you know, if we become too complacent and, you know, if we send kids back to school straight away in one big hit, then... Mm-hmm chance of the virus spiking again is obviously extremely high. Yeah, that's right. And um, the I think, you know, the virus is still in our communities. Um, we haven't had very wide testing. Uh, it's only recently become available in my community. Uh, and so, like, we're not sending our kids back. I just think it seems, I, I don't think it's fair on the teachers. And I think my husband and I, we're still working from home. And so, 
for us, that's a privilege. And I think there are times where you have to use your privilege to support others. See, there are people who absolutely have to send their children to school right now. Um, either they're essential workers or, you know, like there are people who for their own mental health or, or due to their family dynamics, they absolutely have to send their children to school. And so if if I can contribute by not sending my children to school, keeping those numbers as low as possible, lowering the risk for those families, as well as keeping my own family safer, that's something that we can do. Uh, so at the moment, we haven't sent our children back to school, um, which is, it adds to the workload, obviously. Um, but it, it's one of those things we can do. Like we're, we're absolutely not returning to, you know, in bunny years, life is normal. Um partly because we want to help protect our community and, and the less people out there doing those things means the people who have to be out there doing those things are statistically safer. So it's about protecting us and protecting our community. Mm. I want to talk a little bit as well about the impact that not only the virus and also the health ramifications of the virus, but also the social uh, distancing impact has on um, different groups as well. Mm. And one of the things, that I, I, you know, going uh, to your TED talk, you know, disruption is not a dirty word. One of mm. the things, that, um, which is amazing, by the way, thank you so much for doing that. And everyone should go out and listen to it and watch it. And I will link to it on my Twitter account and on my Facebook page. Um, but one of the things that really jumped out at me in that was where you said that more Aboriginal women, uh, sorry, more Aboriginal children are being taken away from their mothers and their families now than yeah. were in the stolen generations. Um, yeah, that's right. And we need to be accountable for that and we need to address that and accept that as a reality of Australia's current colonialism and current oppression of Aboriginal people. Talking about that broadly but also in terms of the impact of a virus like COVID and mm. the you know policies that are being enacted because of that, mm. um, I think for someone, you know, for someone who comes from my demographic, it's really easy for us to walk around and sort of say, well, you know, I'm going to send my kids kids back to school because it's just so hard having them at home with me or making decisions that um, are easy for me without thinking about the broader impact on the community mm. because I'm least likely to be the, the direct recipient of harm from all areas. Mm. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, I think like one thing, for example, um, that I've been trying to kind of bring up a lot online and, and I know other people's are as well is, you know, that risk isn't shared equally. So, at the moment, so I live in New South Wales and obviously schooling systems are different state and territory by state and territory. And uh, here, my understanding is that students not sent to school are being marked as unjustified absent. So when you consider the hyper-surveilling and over-policing, I mean that more in the state sense than the actual police force of our children, although it does happen with the police force as well, but within schools, we already know that First Nations children who make up 7.8% of New South Wales public schooling system and 5.5% of the overall child demographic in the entire country, um, they're over-policed in school. So they're suspended at higher rates. They've done um, research which shows that teachers look at the black students more, the Aboriginal students more. They watch them. They monitor them. They come down harder on them, statistically speaking. Don't even come at me with the not all teachers. I know it's not all teachers. First Nations kids in school and First Nations families are hyper-surveilled. And so we're at the higher risk from something like COVID. We're more likely to have um, all of the factors that make us more high risk. You know, they said that if you were non-Indigenous and over the age of 70, that you shouldn't go out. But if you're Indigenous and over the age of 50, you shouldn't go out. Well, 
you know, that's my mother, that's, you know, our aunties, that's so many people in our community. And so sending our children and then having them come back into our houses puts our families at higher risk, but we're also at higher risk of being punished and penalised by the state if we're not sending our children to school, being painted as the negligent parent, all of those things. So again, that's why I'm saying about in terms of privilege, you know, I have, um, you know, I have more power than than some in terms of, you know, I have um, greater levels of privilege. I'm light skinned, so I'm considered white passing, not that that matters once your kid is ticked as Aboriginal in the schooling system or in the state system. Um, and also a member of our family is high risk. So we have a medical exemption from sending, um, like we had to fight and we had to pay money to get, you know, something written up. Um, so they're things that we've had access to that other families don't have access to. And so I think when policies come in and people go, oh, the kids have to go back to school, it's like, okay, but what about the families who are at higher risk? Um, the, the families who Nan and Pop are hugely involved in the childcare of those children and, and also not sending them puts the family under a high level of scrutiny and children are being removed at higher rates now than during the formal stolen generation era. Uh, and so these are real concerns. These are real risk and these are really current. Mm-hmm. So it's very complicated and I think that there is a there is a push right now to return to normalcy, which I think in part as well is because um, we're used to high-risk things being short-term here. So bushfire season comes to a close eventually. Uh, you know, we you, while you're in it, you think it's never going to end, but, it, you know, it does. The rains eventually come, things eventually stop, you get a bit of a breather. And so I think we are kind of conditioned to go, okay, now that's over, we can return, the air's clean again, let's get out, enjoy it because it's going to come back. Uh, and so I think in that way, we're kind of wired problematically to handle something like COVID because people are just busting to get out and get back into the pubs and disregard all the things that we've been doing. Mm. And I think when I, you know, I rewatched your TEDx talk uh, in preparation for this and when you say something like return to normalcy, I mean, mm. that also has a lot of different meanings in Australia and in a, in a country with a colon colonization history of mm. or in a country like Australia which has a history of colonization and genocide or attempted genocide and slavery and ongoing oppression that idea of return to normalcy obviously has completely different impact so when you say um disruption is not a dirty word and it is it is the obligation of all of us with privilege to particularly those who benefit from the impact of colonization and the history of mm. colonization mm. to to continually disrupt the system that we live in and to, and to, as you say, dismantle the system rather than seek some kind of equality within it because it's inherently un, uh, untenable and inherently unequal, yeah. Then, yeah. then we need to be conscious of what what is it that we're returning to and can we not take this opportunity to think what kind of society do we want to create out of this? Mm, yeah, and I think... Um... You know, something I say in the TED Talk is, like, I don't want people to join me because they think they're helping me. I want them to join me because together we can all have a better future. And I think the things that would benefit me would benefit a lot of people. So, like, I live in a semi-regional area because, I mean, that's what we're told to do, right? You're only, you know, only the the bougie elite are allowed to live in the city and millennials, don't you dare think about avocado or lattes or living anywhere, even in the outer suburbs, right? So we've done the, in quotation mark, right thing. We've gone to, like, you know... (laughs) 
far away from the amenities that we need and, and taken on a commute to work and things like that so that we could have an affordable house so that we could raise a family in a, in a home that we have control over rather than being in the fluctuating rental market. But that means that like we don't have access to a lot of things. You know, we do have long commutes to work and we can't go to a lot of professional development things and gigs. And what we've seen with COVID is, well, actually accessibility was always an option. You know, like there are there are a lot of things that you, you actually absolutely can't do digitally. But what about all the things that we can? You know, and I think that we've seen how quickly, how rapidly people were able to move things online to, to create streaming access. And I think for people who have accessibility issues across the spectrum of what that might mean, having it online is a step towards things kind of being for everyone rather than just for the elite. And so that really excites me. I think that the opportunity here and the fact that people were forced to look into it in the same way that, you know, like as an academic, there's a lot of back and forth about the elite nature of conferences, especially the international ones. You travel so far, so much money, such a big carbon footprint, et cetera, et cetera. But we've always been told it couldn't be online. And you think when you've got carers' responsibilities or physical um, needs that, that make travel really hard or financial barriers, having a conference streamed, for example, is huge and super important for academics who you need to be across the most recent research. But now we've seen it like that can be done. And so I think, you know, in terms of a return to normal, well, I mean, I was never a fan. I've been calling for disruption of what Australia considers normal for a while now um, and joining the voices of people who've been doing it for 230 years. Um, But I'm just really excited that more people are starting podcasts and more people are thinking about ways that their event can be streamed without it becoming financially unviable and I think inviting more people in is really important. One of the things I really love about you and the work that you're doing and, you know, for as I said at the start, for people who know you and who are familiar with your work, it's really only been in the last year that you've kind of been capital, catapulted into the public eye. You know, you, you appear on the drum a lot. Um, mm. you your podcast obviously you appear at writers events you're you're being invited to deliver keynote addresses at mm. you know arts festivals i think one of the things that makes you so exciting as a performer and as a an educator is that you are, are so at ease using new technologies and distilling ideas that some people maybe feel intimidated by because of, you know, the kind of elitism or barriers that have been erected around academia and, and around, you know, intellectual, in, in quote, quote, unquote, intellectual mm-hmm. dialogues. And you say, actually, that's all bullshit. You know, these, yeah. these are for everybody. These discussions are for everybody. And I'm going to teach you about this in this one minute TikTok video. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm not on TikTok as much as I was initially um, because I've I found the racist side of TikTok and it's kind of put me off a little bit. Um, yeah. So I need to I need to work on getting my algorithm back to fun stuff. Uh, but yeah, I think like I think the difficulty with places that are considered scholarly or places that come with platform is they're considered only belonging to the few. And in a lot of ways, that's fair. You need to have expertise and experience. And it's really important that, you know, we don't um, we don't go selling 
ideas and mistruths in order to prop ourselves up like a certain chef has been known to do or certain actors have been known to do. But in saying that, there's room for so many more people and so many more voices. And I've just I've just known so many people. I come from a very disadvantaged background, like super disadvantaged, um, very, very disadvantaged background. And I have known so many people my entire life who are so capable and so highly intelligent and super analytical and just so beautiful. And I think these are the voices and the the critical thinkers that we need in places like academia, but they're also the kind of people that academia has always been like, not for you. It's not for you, but actually it is. And so we all benefit. We all benefit when we get people into these systems to train in the systems. Yeah, I just think that like it's really important, yes, that we respect expertise and that we respect science and knowledge and training and experience. But I also think we need to invite a whole lot more people into these spaces to bring their thoughts and their approaches and their perspective. And I think that it would just create a more rounded appropriate uh, set of tools to help grow our society and and we would all benefit from it Um, and so that's what I'm really passionate about I just want to bring more people in and that's part of disruption as well isn't it I mean you mentioned before the racist side of TikTok and we could talk Mm. about the racist side of Twitter and the racist side of Mm. Facebook and and even I'm sure the racist side of Instagram Um, the the gatekeeping that happens Mm. in this from dominant groups Mm. you know my experience obviously in social media is not uh, with racism but is with sexism and the gatekeeping of of Mm. those places for you know well this is the dissent that I've had on my accounts from you know young men who are upset about the things that I have to say and who want to sort of push you out of them by just being disgustingly hostile I can only Mm. imagine doubly bad for you because you get the woman thing and you get the racism Mm. so Interrupting those spaces and insisting these things, this is an egalitarian space, or at least it should be. Mm. And we have, you know, any group has any, has, has exactly the same amount of right to this space, uh, regardless of whether or not the people who've traditionally enjoyed power like it or not. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, look, social media and these platforms they're just representatives of what we live with every day anyway. So people go, oh, Twitter's so racist. Oh, honey, mm, life's racist. Like, people are racist. Like, those troll accounts, they're people. Like, there are people behind those comments. And as we saw, like, you know, with the horrible attacks on Rosie Batty and then it turned out it was Mark Latham, the people running these accounts and doing these things are horrible in real life. You know, it's not, you know, these are the same people who are real life gatekeepers, not just online. And I think the beautiful thing about something like Twitter is there's, I don't have to go through an editor. I don't have to go through, it's not expensive. It doesn't cost me anything. Um, For me, it was also like social media was also a massively important tool with staying connected to everyone while I had really young children. Um, You know, my children are are now primary school aged, but when they were babies and I was studying full time and working and fostering, I had so much on my plate, being able to have something in my hand while there was a child on the breast and another child asleep next to me where I could just connect with my friends was of such importance. And so I, I consider these platforms tools for accessibility and I really love them. And I think 
like the racist stuff, you can block those accounts. There's a lot of great filters, um, you know, with Twitter. I don't see most of uh, every now and then I'll log out and look at my own account and I'm like, oh, wow, there's some like vitriol being aimed my way. But I don't see that on a day to day basis because I've set it all up. You can't DM me unless I follow you back, stuff like that. Um, what I think drains me more is the people who refuse to Google or do their own engage in their own form of education. They just expect every First Nations Twitter account to be their personal teacher. And it's like, we're busy. We're busy. We're working full time. We're doing PhDs. We're running businesses. We're growing our families. We're publishing. Like, go and read all of the quality information available to you for free online rather than being like, oh, can you just explain to me exactly what a birthing tree is? You know, you can literally Google that. You can Google that. And why would I give you that one-on-one personalized attention? And then the hostility if you don't meet their needs, because I do respond to a lot. I do do a lot of education. And sometimes I think it's for the people looking on rather than for the individual. But the second you don't meet them, they're like, well, I was an ally, but I'm revoking my allyship. And you think, well, you were never really an ally. You just told yourself that or, you know, it made you feel good or it's not that trendy to be a racist at the moment. I'm sure it'll come back in fashion. It certainly seems to be by the looks of that Volkswagen ad that just got pulled, but they've acknowledged it was racist and they shouldn't have done it, but I mean, they did it. So it just feels a bit Trumpy to me, you know, like, well, we'll use double speak and put it out there and that way we'll catch the ones we wanted to catch and we'll apologize to the others. And and we'll stoke a conversation amongst those racists about how everyone's just too bloody offended by everything these days. Exactly. Oh, it's just a joke. Or, I mean, this was not a joke. It was pretty gross. I don't know if you saw this in the last couple of weeks, but Fred Perry uh, launched an ad campaign that featured four black and brown men in their shirts. You know, and Fred Perry's obviously the history of Fred Perry is very much rooted in the true skinhead history in Britain, you know, like very diverse and um, as in true skinhead, you know, origins yeah, yeah. Yeah. rather than rather than the bastardization of it. Um, and all of these racists on Twitter like lost their fucking banana about it saying, oh, well, I know now who Fred Perry obviously doesn't want my money. You just think like the fucking fragility of that. Yeah. You, know? you, yeah. you can't you can't wear a shirt now because what you think <laughs> an ad campaign with four men of colour means that suddenly Fred Perry's not for you. Don't worry. Everywhere's still super racist. Yeah, I just think like I can't imagine. I just can't imagine that being your biggest concern in life. Like, oh, my God, a black person wore the shirt from the brand that I like. Oh, no, it sullied the brand. It's like, do you have a job? Do you have stuff to do? Like, we are so busy. Like, we are busy. We are tired. We are getting stuff done. We're thinking about community. And you're like, oh, wah, wah. I don't like the look of the person who wore that shirt. It's like that woman who complained because a woman with dark skin was on like the front of a magazine or a catalog or something. And she was like, well, my skin doesn't look like that. So your foundation mustn't be for me. And it's like, and what do you think that like black people don't that exist? There could be so many different stories that I'm not even sure which one you're referring to. <laughs> yeah. Like it's, it's like, guys, the band-aids are all in your shade. The makeup in the supermarket's all in your shade. Like can people with skin color that doesn't look like yours have nothing you know I just think it's it's the fragility of it and it's fragile for a reason because it's not actually built on this foundation of truth it's not like actually white people are superior well they're not you know what I mean they're just 
people. We're all just people. And we all have, all of our cultures have different things to offer. And if you're so offended by the existence of people who look different to you, like maybe you need to kind of check in with yourself and your own self-identity and you know it's the same with politics it's like it's it's so these parties are so fragile because they're not really meritocracies they're really 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 mediocre people most of the time who just went to the right schools and knew the right people and that's why when they're hit with a curly question from the journalist they can't answer it on their feet because they're not actually that equipped to run the country. And that's why they're always stabbing each other in the back. It's because they're mediocre. And I just think, you know, if we could just get past our love affair with white men in suits, Mm -hmm. then maybe we could actually open up to some real leadership, which we need at the moment. We've got climate change. We've got a pandemic. We've got a continent that's been really badly treated for like 230 years and we're now facing the consequences of that like wouldn't some leadership now just be so delicious Mm -hmm. I agree with you 100% we don't live in a meritocracy we live in a mediocrity 100% Amy shall we get Mm. to the questions yes Please also note my disclaimer in very big flashing lights that neither I nor Amy Tunig are medical doctors, psychologists, or professionally trained sex therapists. We've got a little thing called life experience and are both very tall. I just want to say before we go to answer this question that there is some triggering uh, language in there, but I thought it was an excellent opportunity to destigmatize some of the social and uh, I thought it was an excellent opportunity to destigmatize some of the beliefs that people have around STIs in general, but also around herpes and HSV1 and HSV2. Ashamed asks, I'm a 44-year-old female and have only had one serious relationship, which has resulted in marriage and two beautiful children. I was brought up in a traditional family where many relationships were frowned upon and marriage was seen as a lifelong commitment. For these reasons, and possibly the hopelessly romantic and unrealistic belief that love alone should fix everything, I have stayed married for 17 years. Unfortunately, I don't believe my relationship is a healthy one and I have on numerous occasions wanted to walk away. But for various reasons, I haven't done that. One being the fear of not being able to sufficiently provide for my children because I gave up my career shortly after my first child was born and only returned to work a few years ago in a much lower paid part-time role. The other reason is that my partner passed on to me HSV2 or herpes simplex virus 2. This has given me great shame. I became aware of my condition about eight years ago. Early in the relationship, I asked him to undertake a test for sexual diseases as I knew he had slept with various women. I was naive and unaware that a test for HSV2 needed to be specifically asked for. Hence, at the time of marriage and sex, I was unaware that he had it. Had I known, I am certain I would not have continued our relationship. Now at 44 and not having had the experience of ever dating and being HSV2 positive, I fear the prospect of dating and more so rejection. I feel great embarrassment having to disclose this infection. Furthermore, I believe and I understand one's fear and hesitation that once I do disclose it, no one would want to risk their health to commence a relationship with me. Is there a safe place I could meet accepting, open-minded people, men or women? Please be frank and advise me of the prejudice present in the wider community regarding this condition. Your advice and perspective is greatly appreciated. Amy. Mm. 
Wow, what a complex question to unpack. There is so much going in on that. So, I mean, up front, I just want to make it really clear that I, I have no qualifications or training in sexual health. Um, but what I do have experience in is is being married, is partnering with, with child production, you know, creating children and, and child rearing in a partnership. And it sounds like you are unpacking some really, really big feelings. Um, just thinking about what you've said there, I don't know what you mean by a traditional family because that's going to be reflective of your culture, which isn't really clear in the question. But it sounds like your views on things have grown and changed and and perhaps you're ready for something new. Um, so if I'm right in understanding that, although at the start it sounds like you're you're in this relationship and you're not necessarily committed to leaving, the second part of the question, it sounds a bit like you're staying because you're fearful um, and with the reassurance of, yes, there are safe communities out there that maybe that's something you'd like to pursue so I want to acknowledge that I really feel you on the difficulty that comes with being financially dependent on another person um, and this is a sacrifice and an experience that so many women have um, so many people have when we're partnering and child rearing uh, and so I just wanted to acknowledge that um, and I wanted to acknowledge the fact that it, although you say like it's an unhealthy relationship it doesn't necessarily indicate that your partner is is not worthy of like respect and being included in this conversation with you. And, and so I think I'd probably encourage you to think about if you've got a foot out the door and you want to move on and it's just the fear of being rejected due to the stigma that you feel is associated with that, that maybe you should also consider having an open conversation with your partner because they're in this relationship too. And I just think like I would be really hurt if I knew that my partner was only staying with me because they felt no one else wanted them. You know, you want to be wanted. Um, and then in terms of like, are there other people, are there safe communities for men and or women and non-binary people? Like, yeah, like I'm not, I'm really not familiar with this stigmatization that I'm hearing in your question. Um, it's not a space, like I'm not an active data. I'm in a, a monogamous relationship. Um, I think that maybe it would be great for you to read up a little bit more. Like you note that you knew that your husband-to-be had had multiple partners, so you wanted to, them to get checked. But it's important to remember that people can get STIs and STDs from one partner, you know, unless you're both each other's only partner. This is the thing that I really want to drill down to with this question is uh, the internalised shame. I want to emphasise not only to this questioner but also to anybody listening that STIs, whether or not you have uh, HSV1 or HSV2, whether or not you have um, HIV, whether or not you have, uh, I'm trying to think of lots of different, chlamydia, whatever it might be, having an STI is absolutely no indicator of your moral value or your worth as a person. It is clearly just a descriptor, a fact about you. It is a fact about you. It, is, it, it, it indicates absolutely nothing about what kind of person you are, about what level of respect or dignity that you deserve from other people. It is only a descriptor. And 
But the reason that this shame exists is because we still live in a very sex-negative culture and we still um, battle with, particularly where women are concerned, we still battle with slut-shaming and the connection of morality with Mm. the kind of sex that we have, how much sex we have and the impact of that sex on us physically. Um, Mm. So from the outset... If you have HSV2 or if you have HSV1, that's, that is purely a fact about you. Um, mm. Secondly, I wanted to use the opportunity to share some statistics and some facts with people who may be listening that the reason that HSV2 isn't picked up on in sexual health checks or the reason that you have to specifically ask for it, as far as I'm aware, again, repeating the fact that I'm not a sexual health practitioner, is because it's so common and also... Mm it presents itself so differently in people. Uh, you may be, you may have, many of us are walking around with some form of herpes, some form of the herpes simplex virus. And we have absolutely no idea because we may be completely asymptomatic. Um, it also, if we do have symptoms, they may present in different ways. For example, uh, and in terms of the, the rate of infection, for example, one in eight people have HSV2. So you may feel like if you have been diagnosed with HSV2 because of the shame and the stigma Uh, surrounding herpes and the way that it's still used really disgustingly as the punchline to a lot of jokes um, and and the punchline being that it is an indicator of moral worth and uh, respect in a person. We go around thinking that it's not that common and that, you know, that if you, you know, in, in 1982, Time magazine had a cover that called herpes the new scarlet letter. Um, and there is some evidence, and I found this out reading Everyday Feminism, there's some theory and some evidence to suggest that prior to the 70s, I mean, HSV1 and HSV2 was not something that just developed in the last 50 years, but prior to the 70s, it wasn't, it didn't have a stigma around it. And it was only in the 70s when um, a pharmaceutical company saw an, a gap in the market for them to increase stigma and shame around herpes through the development of a Zavirax cream that and also in response to the sexual revolution and the ways in which that was then used to further stigmatize liberated women in particular that all of this stigma and shame is a result of that and not actually uh anything to do with history of the history of humans and our sexual interaction with each other so one in eight people have some form of the herpes virus um i personally have hpv so many people with vaginas have HPV and I'm assuming so many people with penises have HPV as well. Um, the, the, the transmission rate for HSV2, which is um, more commonly understood to be the genitals herpes, although you can have HSV2 orally and you can have HSV1, which is oral herpes, you can have that genitally as well. So there's, there's so much going on with it. Um, but the transmission rate, if you have HSV2, is highest in the period 12 to 18 months uh, immediately after infection. That's that's when you're most infectious. But that doesn't also mean that you will definitely infect people because practicing safe sex and being aware of your sexual health and uh, you may be taking antiviral medication all decreases the possibility of you passing that virus on to someone else or that infection onto someone else. And I'm so glad that this questioner calls it an infection and not a disease because hmm. that's a huge um landmark in terms of working towards destigmatization was recognizing these things as infections and not diseases. Um, so so immediately if you were if you contracted HSV2 early on in your marriage, that was 17 years ago, the likelihood of you actually even 
passing it on to a new partner is pretty slim. But particularly if you're practicing safe sex, which you should be if you are having sex with a new partner anyway. Um, Mm. I'd also like to reassure you that you know there are you will you will encounter so many people out in the dating world who are respectful and who are very mature when it comes to sexual history and when it comes to sexual disclosures and if you were to to disclose something to someone that for you is obviously uh you are still feeling quite vulnerable about it and you definitely lack practice in terms of disclosure you will get better at it i promise but if you were to disclose that to someone and they responded to you in a way that was anything other than empathetic and kind and respectful and treated you with the dignity that you deserve, then you do not want to be having sex with them anyway because they do not deserve to have sex with you, to be intimate with you. They don't deserve to have you um, explore that space with them. Having said that, I know that it can be really hard and putting yourself out there in a way that um, can potentially uh, result in trauma or mistreatment is is a really risky scary thing to do um Mm. I can't guarantee you that no one will respond badly what I can assure you of is that the people who respond badly are fuckwits yeah you don't want to be playing with them anyway Uh, I looked it up and STIs can be passed on from mother to baby in childbirth so I think this there's a false correlation there between um not by you. I mean, like in the question, it's implied like if you've had lots of partners, then you're at risk. And it's like, well, actually, you know, you could have contracted it when you were born or from partners or whatever. Um, and then I would add on that, like echoing what you're saying is like, also, let's be done with slut shaming. Like this idea that if you've had more than one partner, that that's gross, um, you know, and, and also like the questioner says that they're interested in communities with males or females. So I feel like maybe they're on the brink of a really new adventure in terms of a new phase in life, a new period in life. And like you're 44, like that's so young. In the queer community, um, Mm. you know, you said that, she said that she was interested in men and women, you'll definitely find by exploring the queer community a much more progressive and open Mm you an attitude to the one that it sounds like you are anticipating or the one that you're used yeah. to. You may not feel comfortable disclosing to your friends or your family mm. that you have mm. an STI and, and, you know, certainly you don't, you're not required to. Um, no. If you want to have those conversations, then these are, you know, having, and this is why we need to emphasize more comprehensive proactive, positive sex, sex education, not just in schools, but also in society, sex education mm. that is focused not only on the, the mechanics of sex, but also on um, sex positivity, on consent, on pleasure, mm. on destigmatization, on um, respect, et cetera, et cetera, mm. that a healthier sexual society or a society that has healthier sexual ideas and understanding of each other is one in which we can't help, I don't think, but be naturally more empathetic and kind because if you consider the space of sex as being one in which we are most the most physically and emotionally intimate with other people, that to do that in a way, to practice doing that in a way that is consistently respectful and kind and nice and explorative and, and cognizant of your other partner or partner's pleasure and uh, their feeling of safety and respect is one that naturally filters out into the way that we treat all people everywhere. Um, yeah. That's why we need better sex education. Um, and also if you are, 
even if you're at the point where you're like, well, I don't feel stigma about my diagnosis or by, about my um, the, this this fact about me, this benign fact about me, but how do I, what does it actually practically look like to disclose that information mm. you may have mm. never done before? Then there are lots of resources on the internet as well that you can seek yeah. out. Really great article on Bustle where they spoke to, I'll link to it on my Facebook page, they spoke to 23 uh, young people who had uh, HSV1 or HSV2 and asked them about their process in learning how to disclose that to a partner, whether or not they disclose at all. Because this is the other thing, and you can speak to your um, sexual health professional and practitioner about this. Um, it's not the you don't necessarily always need to disclose that you have uh, an STI. You may choose to do that to you know to signal that to your partner, but it's not actually necessary for you because you're not always infectious. Um, mm. This is such a terrible word, but you're not always in a position where you're able to pass that um, STI on. And, mm-hmm. and the more educated you become about STIs and about your own personal status, the more you'll be able to make those decisions as you see fit. By the same token, if someone discloses to you that they have an STI, and this is to all listeners, if someone discloses to you that they have an STI, respond kindly, respond respectfully. I'm not saying that you're obliged to continue or pursue to pursue a sexual relationship with them. Everyone is entitled to make decisions about their bodies and about what they are and are not comfortable with. But what you are absolutely obligated to do as a human being is to respond with kindness and respect and maturity. Because if you can't do those things, then you shouldn't be having sex with another person at all. Yeah. Yeah. And like whatever pathway led you to submitting a question to the big sister hotline I think just keep going down that pathway I think it's it'll lead you to lots of lovely parts of the internet where you can access apps and and articles like the one Clem referenced where people outline well this is how this person discloses and and then you can take from that what works for you because that's your business Mm -hmm. and also to everyone else stop fucking making jokes about herpes where herpes is the punchline because it's not funny it's gross and you're just perpetuating stigma so don't do it. I'd just like to put a content note on this next question because it does reference sexual assault. Um, so go gently. When to disclose writes, I was sexually assaulted by a friend at college five years ago and for a long time I was really embarrassed to, to talk about it. There's clearly a theme emerging in today's questions. However, after doing a lot of work and seeking some professional help, I feel as if I'm in a really good position and feel like I have the tools to handle any triggers. As a nurse once told me, you'll never forget it, but you'll learn how to own it and live with it. My question, though, is I've just gotten into a relatively new relationship, my first relationship since the assault, and I'm not sure how and when is the right time to tell my partner. I just don't know when's an appropriate time to bring it up and how to go about it. Amy Tunick, thoughts? Mm. Well, my first thought is well done to you for seeking support. So you've mentioned a nurse, you've mentioned that you've, uh, I don't know if you said psychologist, but that you've, you've gained the support needed to handle what's happened after the assault. And I think that for so many people, that is just such a hard step to take. Um, and it sounds like the result is a lot of healing. And now look at, you know, it's been five years and you're in your first relationship since. So 
firstly, just, you know, well done for these steps that you've taken. And I think that's great role modeling to have on the show as well. Like, wow. Um, The second thing is, I don't think you have to disclose it. I think that's up to you. I don't think that you have to tell them. Um, You know, I, I, I know a lot of people, unfortunately, have had this experience. Um, I've had a lot of people disclose sexual assault to me. Uh, And I know people who have been married for 30 years before they've told their husband or wife or whatever. And I think that it's up to you. I don't think you owe an explanation to your partner. Um, You've mentioned that you feel really safe in terms of, you know, you're not experiencing triggers. And so unless it becomes a problem or unless you find that you would really like to share that and and, um, share that might not be the right phrasing, but unless you feel that you would benefit and the relationship would benefit by sharing that information, um, my first response is you you don't actually have to um, tell them. Well, I uh, thank you, Amy. I agree with um, much of what you've said. I'd also like to say um, I'm really, really sorry that someone chose to do that to you and to go back to the fact that this is a choice that people make. This is a choice that people make to hurt another human being and leave another human being with lifelong ramifications of that choice. So I'm really, really sorry that someone chose to do that to you and to anyone listening, Mm. to the numerous people listening to this who will have had a similar experience because so many women have had a similar experience. So many people have had a similar experience. I'm sorry that, that someone has chosen to do that to you too. Yeah. I also echo Amy's thoughts that it's really wonderful that you've found that you've been able to get to a place where you feel really safe you've had good professional help and support and you feel able to at the very least disclose it to us um to speak it it out loud in some sense and to take ownership of it back and to and to refuse to allow it to um define I don't know if that's the correct word either but to refuse to allow it to limit your life Mm. If you feel like you want to share this with your partner, then I understand that this will be a difficult conversation for you to have with them and you perhaps need to, you perhaps might need to brief them on the fact that you're going to have a difficult conversation and emphasise to them from the outset that you need them to be supportive and to just listen because one Mm. of the things so difficult for people when they disclose something like this or when they disclose a trauma in their life is being met with resistance or being met with questions or being mm. even even facing that kind of uh, the insidious sort of microaggression of s- sensing that someone thinks that you might be exaggerating or whatever you know in a- any multitude of ways that men in particular have taken upon themselves to discredit and discount the disclosures mm. make to them. So emphasize to him to the outset that you need him to be supportive and you need him to just listen. You're not looking for advice and you're not really looking for anything constructive other than that you would like to just tell him and you would like him to know this information about you. I suppose as well if he if this information is new to him or if you've never had an experience of a partner disclosing to him before, you could also um suggest to him that he do some reading, that he uh, read books or accounts of, of how he might 
be best placed to support you because it's also not your job to then hold his hand through the process that he may go through in in trying to figure out how he can best be a supportive partner to you. So this is a, this potentially could be a very positive test of the kind of stability that your relationship can develop together. But the other thing that I really wanted to to say via this question and to I know that some men do listen to this show is that there should be an expectation or none of you should be surprised at the possibility that any woman that you choose to enter into a relationship with is likely to have had at least some experience at some point in her life of sexual harassment or even sexual assault. That The statistics around these things are actually very high and that you, if you're not going out with a woman who's had an experience of sexual assault, you almost certainly are friends with a woman who's had an experience or multiple experiences of sexual assault. So to, to go through life with the knowledge that this is actually a reality for so many of the women that you love and that you care for, it's very valuable information for you to have because it hopefully should dictate how you, how you respond to the world that we live in and how you prioritise the need for that world to change. So if you are a man listening to this, expect that the, the woman you may choose to love or choose to be falling in love with has had a very different experience of life to you and be sensitive to that and be empathetic and ask questions about her life. And I'm not saying go out and say like, so tell me about all the times you've been assaulted. Definitely don't do that. Please don't do that. <laughs> but it does strike me in, you know, the hundreds if not thousands of questions that women have asked me over the years about how they have difficult conversations with their partners or how they get their partners to care about feminism or to care about, you know, the, the, the things in their life that have impacted them greatly is that so many men demonstrate a complete lack of curiosity or interest in the reality of women's lives. Mm-hmm. So, you know, take it upon yourselves to be become more curious and to become more conscious of the fact that the woman who walks alongside you and who wakes up to, next to you every day is carving a very different path through the world than you are or, or that you have had in lots of cases the privilege to be able to walk down. Hmm. And if someone were to respond to the question again, if someone were to respond in a way that makes you feel, if you disclose and someone responds in a way that makes you feel unsafe or makes you feel uh, like you, it forces you back a few steps on that path to recovery, use that as a clear red flag. Mm. And it doesn't mean that, that red, red flag is impossible to overcome. But if you can't trust the person that you're giving, you know, a, you're, you're being intimate with and you're giving a proportion of your mind, body and soul to, if you can't trust them to be respectful of a disclosure like that, then they're not someone that you should be investing any of your time into. Mm. Yeah, I think trust is a really important part with a conversation like that um, because you're you're potentially giving them the tools to later hurt you um, with that story. Yeah. So I think think long and hard about it. Um, know that there's an, ele- an element of vulnerability um, and and also if if you feel like yes you want to have that conversation, then I would say um, I, I echo what Clementine said around 
making it clear to them at the start what you actually anticipate from them in the conversation because I think it's quite normal for people to have an urge to help. Um, when people talk to me about things, my first instinct is always to try and fix the problem, which is really what people want. They just want you to listen. Yeah. So it could be good to anticipate ahead of time what you actually want from that conversation and let them know and then also set some boundaries um, if that conversation is purely for their ears and not for their mum to know and not for them to bring up when your best friend's there or whatever um, just set that boundary that it's in the cone of silence that it's between the two of you or or if you're open about it or whatever like whatever your boundaries are make sure that's included um, in the conversation so that you both walk away from it understanding what was expected from it mm, mm. and that's that's really all you can all you can do isn't it Do I tell asks, I'm writing about a relationship issue or more a future relationship issue. In my early 20s, I began a relationship with a married man. The span of the relationship was approximately four years, two of which he was married. I'm not writing about the actual nightmare that situation was. That's something I unpacked through therapy. It's more, how do I explain this past to any future partners? Although the time period had such an impact on me as an individual, it's not something I feel I need to unpack with a new boyfriend but it always seems too important not to mention. I haven't had a relationship since, and that was two years ago, but I'm ready to connect with someone again. Is it wrong to withhold this? Any direction or thoughts would be appreciated. Well, the first thing I want to say to this little sister is congratulations for getting therapy. Therapy is amazing. Therapy is the way in which we choose to heal ourselves, and it can be really, really hard and confronting and obviously drag up a lot of trauma, but it is a very effective, if we provided we have a good therapist, it's a really effective, um, a really effective path through trauma that helps to put ourselves back together. So congratulations. The fact that you needed to get therapy after this relationship indicates to me that um, there was probably some, some things that happened in it that weren't good and that you, uh, you know, some power imbalances, there's clearly a reason why you came out of it feeling like you needed to, you needed some help to put some part of yourself back together. So congratulations for that. The second thing that I want to focus on is you saying that you don't feel the need to unpack it, but it always seems too important not to mention. And one of the reasons I think it feels important not to mention is because from the sounds of your email, you're in your late twenties, the relationship began in your early 20s, it lasted for four years and you've been single for the two years since then. So this is probably this is the most profound and transformative, for better or worse, relationship of your 20s, which is a time in which we become adults. So it feels incredibly important to you to mention it now because it's the it's it sounds like it's really the major um the major point you have or the major experience you have to point your future relationships towards in 10 years time when you may have had one more serious relationship or you may have had a string of really fun experiences with lots of different people it will feel less like something that you need to um, invite people to scrutinize as a as a, a central part of who you are it, it, mm -hmm. it 
So it kind of exists now in a state that makes you feel like it's it's been such a huge part of my life. How do I how do I not share that with people or, or am I wrong for not wanting to share it? But it will actually become more and more minimal as the years go by. And eventually 10 years down the track or 20 years down the track, you're going to look back on, oh, I had this really awful relationship in my early 20s, but you know, I've had so many great ones since then. Or mm. that taught me what not to do with people. Or that taught mm. me how to identify red flags or whatever it might be. Mm. Yeah, I'd echo what Clementine said about you know, good on you for accessing therapy. And I got to say, we millennials and the Gen Zs are so great at just going, yes, why wouldn't we access these tools that can help us, you know, access our own healing and to become better versions of our own selves that maybe we carry a little less baggage around with us um, when we when we utilise these tools that are at our disposal. Um, and, yeah, it sounds like you're, you're 26, 27, um, and you were under the age of 25 when you were in that relationship. And I think it's important to point out, you know, your frontal lobe, the part of your brain that's in charge of forward planning and understanding the long-term ramifications of our decision-making doesn't kick in until you're 25. Some people it's a bit earlier, but 25 is the safe bet. And so, you know, Clem and I sit on different sides of the spectrum in terms of how we feel around people involved in affairs and things like that and that's okay but what I would say is you know little sister go easy on yourself like that was very young and it sounds like you've done a lot of work um you say you don't feel the need to unpack it don't don't tell them it's up to you in the spirit of um well I was just going to say that in the spirit of uh offering some kind of big sisterly guidance or a sense of solidarity, solidarity in terms of um, recognising that we're all on our own paths. And uh, for anyone who who does have a very, like, strict kind of um, yes or no view on this, in my 20s I was involved briefly with a married man and it's neither, I'm, it's not something that I'm proud of and it's not something I'm not proud of. I have no feelings about it other than this was an experience that I had and it uh as all of my relationships have done in some way, taught me something funda- fundamental about myself and the kind of person that I want to be. And so I would make mo- no moral judgment on, particularly not if you're the other person. I mean, the person, he's he's the one with the responsibility to the person he made the vows to, which is not to say that we should not support and uphold the sisterhood and make good, kind choices about other people. But the way that I feel about the way that I felt about myself in my 20s in relation to men and even in relation to other women is very different to the way that I feel about myself at 38 in relation to both of those things. And I probably wouldn't uh, be in that situation now mainly because I hate all men, obviously. <laughs> no, but I'm a lot more, I'm, I feel a lot more because of the the time that I've spent um, unpacking patriarchy in my own life and figuring out what what its impact on me has been, I feel a lot more solidarity to women now than I did when mm. I was younger and trying to figure out myself and susceptible to the the thrill and susceptible to the flattery that comes from thinking that you've been picked and you've been picked mm. in a specific circumstance. So I, I guess as a big sister, I'm offering you like love and recognition and I hope that part of your process has been if you felt any kind of um, sense of 
shame or if you felt any kind of sense of like I did a I did a bad thing. Um, I don't know if you have, so if you didn't, then disregard that. But if that was part of your therapy process, then please know that it's just these things happen on the path to becoming who we are. And and if we learn positive things out of the choices that we make and if we heal ourselves and if we heal the choices that we've made that have had, had an impact on other people by by committing to doing things differently, then I think that those are those are those are not things that we need to disclose to other people. You don't need to have that conversation with anyone else if you don't want to. But at the same time, I don't think that you should feel um, like it needs to be kept a secret. Mm. So I think it's interesting if 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 Clementine and I are your big sisters and we sit on slightly, I, I feel quite uncomfortable around around the conversation of, of people being with, with other people's partners in that way, which I recognise the language in that, like, in terms of, oh, that person belongs to that person, um, is problematic. But my point is, and the reason I say, well, look, I'm less comfortable with this than Clementine is because we both actually came to the same point, which was, it's your business. Mm. Um, you, you don't owe new relationships, any information on your past relationships. It can be helpful at times, if you've been through trauma or if you've had great relationships, the things that you learn, sometimes we want to we want to share those lessons with new partners so that we can be better partners to one another. It's or, or, you know, if there's more than two people in the relationship, however that dynamic may work, sometimes we share that information and they become useful. Um, there are things that we, we will hate that will seem unreasonable unless the person understands where it's coming from. And that's fine and that's all well and good. Um, but it's up to you. So as someone who is less comfortable around the conversation or Clementine who's slightly more comfortable than I am with it, we both come to the same position, which is, you know, like you've, you've grown from it, you've done a lot of work, um, wherever you've landed with it, it's if you don't feel the need to unpack it, don't do it. That's your information. You don't owe that person anything at this point. Uh, and it's completely up to you. We're all entitled to have stories that belong just to us. Even if you've been married for 50 years to someone and you think they're the love of my life, you are still entitled to have things that belong just to you. Yes, I have bad dating stories that I've never shared with my husband that I like deeply look forward to sharing with my daughters when they're teenagers because they're hilariously bad like but that's that's not for him and it sounds like you've been on quite a journey and you know you're you're a bit older and you've you're in a new position and it's up to you and there's so much more to come You've been listening to The Big Sister Hotline, a weekly advice podcast that delivers no-nonsense words with love from the kind of people you know have your back, your big sisters. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podchaser, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you look for great content. And you can also listen to all the back episodes. If you like it, please do consider rating and reviewing it because it definitely helps. Uh, send your questions to bigsisterhotline at gmail.com. And you can also support the ongoing making of the podcast at my Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash Clementine Ford. And if you are a sponsor who would like to sponsor future episodes of the Big Sister Hotline, please do email me again on bigsisterhotline at gmail.com.
My guest this week has been Amy Tunig, a, sorry, I'm going to start that again. My guest this week has been Amy Tunig, one of my BFFs, an academic, a PhD candidate, a disruptor, and a excellent creator of online content. Amy, what's up next for you? Hmm. Well, I'm waiting on my new aviary to be arrived. So that's what's next for regional life, Amy. Uh, I'm I'm actually in the write-up stage of my thesis, which is just so amazing. So I've I spent a couple of years working on this project and I'm now at the point where I get to start writing it up to share what the research has found. And so that's just a beautiful point to be at that home stretch. I've got some fun projects coming up, which are, um, they'll be announced over the next few weeks. And yeah, just keep on going. It's, it's really exciting. And people can follow you on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok on the at handle at Amy Tunig. And uh, that's A-M-Y-T-H-U-N-I-G. Amy, thank you so much. I love you. I will call you soon and uh, we will talk about all the things we talk about, boys, food, love, and annoying people online. (laughs) (laughs) Love you too. Thank you for having me on. Remember, there's no topic too thorny and no question too weird for the Big Sister Hotline. We're here for all the questions you don't want to ask your therapist, especially now that it has to be over Zoom. So contact us instead, the Big Sister Hotline. The phone lines are open. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.